all of us do a lot of things in our own power to improve ourselves. So we drink coffee to fill in a better, uh, to stimulate ourselves. And we read books to become better educated. We go to school. We, we wear nice clothing. We work out. Like we, we do all the things that help us succeed in life, right? The things we want to do. And having this chip like to implant in our brains is, is a continuation of what we've always done, a desire to be our very best selves. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And this is Moonshot, the show where we explore seemingly impossible technology ideas and the people working to make them happen. In this episode, hacking the human body. From RFID chips in the palm of your hands to hardwiring your brain for entirely new senses, we're exploring the realm of where human and technology literally and physically become one. My name is Brian Johnson. I'm the founder and CEO of Kernel. Brian Johnson is one of the most interesting people you'll find in tech. He's what you would describe as a serial entrepreneur. He's started several businesses, but he's always had this desire to do something more. Well, so I guess this goes back to when I was 21 years old. I just returned to the United States after living in Ecuador for two years. And... I felt this burning desire that I wanted to spend my life trying to improve the lives of others. I lived among extreme poverty. And so I asked myself the question, like, what is the single thing I could do that would contribute the most value to the species? And I couldn't find the answer. And so I decided that I would become an entrepreneur, retire by the age of 30, which is crazy. (laughs) But at the time, it made sense to me. And then with abundance of time and money, I'd go out and, and find what that thing was. Back in 2007, Brian largely bootstrapped an online payments company called Braintree in an effort to improve the way digital payments worked. The company was a huge success, and in 2013, he sold it to eBay for $800 million. For the duration of that time, I'd been thinking almost every day, like, what is the single thing I would do? And I arrived at the conclusion that working on human potential is the single greatest contribution I could make to the world in terms of its ability to impact the future of the human race. Brian now had the means to fulfill his long-term vision of working on a meaningful problem, and he also had the idea. So he invested $100 million of his own money to found Kernel, a company which aims to improve human ability by integrating technology into the human brain. We are building chips to implant in the brain to fix what's broken. For example, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, anxiety, depression are all things that have afflicted uh, us personally or our friends and family. Okay, we know what you're thinking. Implanting chips in the brain, isn't that just a little bit crazy? Uh, To a lot of people's surprise, there are already more than 125,000 people in the world who have implanted chips. And they're used for deep brain stimulation to treat Parkinson's. And so this, uh, in in the industry, you call it a lead. It's implanted in the brain, an area of the basal ganglia. And if you can electrically stimulate that portion of the brain, then a person's motor function can return to normal and the person can restore a relatively normal life. 
so I saw Brian present a session at VivaTech in Paris, and he shows this video of a Parkinson's patient who has one of these deep brain stimulation devices. This is a procedure whereby two probes are dropped deep into my brain and hooked up via a wire down my neck to a pacemaker in my chest. The patient looks normal. I will demonstrate. This is me with the power on. I've got very good movement. But when he turns off the stimulation, his body starts to shake, almost uncontrollably. It's harder for me to get, get words out and speak. I'm completely rigid. And if I tried to stand up, I'd fall. Um, if anyone thinks I'm faking this, um, I'm not. And then when he turns back on the stimulation, the shaking instantly stops. Oh, almost automatically. The power comes back on. I'm steady. We're building upon that technology. For example, like how do you build technology to chronically implant in the brain? How do you know how to stimulate what parts of the brain and what ways? So we're building on things that have been out for 20 years. It's just the instruments out there are blunt in nature. And the question that is really exciting to me is if, if we can take the advancements in microelectronics, material science, and build upon that and create better tools, then we'll have a more capable tool set of addressing more complicated diseases, other diseases. Brian Johnson's initial focus might be fixing things that are broken in the brain, but there's a much larger goal here, one that could see technology used to not only repair, but actually upgrade our own abilities. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk's latest venture called Neuralink Corp. Its aim, linking brains to computers by using implants. Yes, it's our old friend Elon Musk. Now, he confirmed in March that he's working on a similar project to Brian Johnson's called Neuralink, amongst all his other day jobs, in a quest to address what he sees as a growing gap between humans and artificial intelligence. So it's some sort of direct cortical interface. Um, and you called it a neural lace. Neural lace, yeah. Now, Facebook have also announced they're building technology to interface with the brain, something they see as a way to make improvements specifically in their domain, how we communicate with each other. This is Facebook's Regina Dugan. So what if you could type directly from your brain? It sounds impossible, but it's closer than you may realize. Facebook say they're wanting to create a brain interface technology that is non-invasive. So rather than implanting a chip directly in the brain, their approach is to create a wearable interface. And it's not just about the brain. Facebook even have some real skin in the game, so to speak. And if we can make it possible to communicate directly from your brain, what if we could make it possible for you to hear through your skin? And the idea of creating non-invasive technology to integrate with the body is something that gets investors like Kevin Rose excited. We have so many different changes that are happening in our body right now um, 
that, if we were provided the data, could really help us in a variety of different ways. Kevin is an investor with True Ventures and is someone who is fascinated by body hacking, wearables, and all the data that can be gathered when you integrate technology with humans. You know, I, I went to my doctor and um, got a, uh, you have to get a prescription for it in the States um, for a continuous glucose monitor. And um, you eventually, you're given this kind of plunger that you hook up to your side and you inject uh, a probe into your fat and then into your belly. And then um, you wear this sensor that um, transmits data back to your phone or Apple Watch. And I could glance at my Apple Watch and at any point in time I can tell you exactly what my glucose level is in my blood. And, um, you know, we know that spikes in, in glucose and the release of insulin has been linked to diabetes. I don't have diabetes, but I find it fascinating to think about um, and, and figure out how to control inflammation um, and spikes in glucose. Um, just because we've seen that, that, that when you don't have these huge massive spikes, um, you're at a lower risk for everything from cancer to you name it. So it's just a fun body, body hacking kind of experiment. And so, um, you know, looking at that data and figuring out how we can get at that data without having to be invasive, I think would be a huge step forwards. And we'll be back with more of our Hacking Humans episode right after this break. While many are looking at a non-invasive future, there's plenty of people right now who are integrating and living with technology in their own body in an effort to enhance their daily lives. So if you could just introduce yourself, uh, your name and your title. Sure. Uh, it's just Emil Grafstra and um, founder and CEO of Dangerous Things. Emil Grafstra is what you would call a biohacker, one of an army of pioneers experimenting right now with how our bodies can be augmented with simple, useful technologies. What we're doing is bionics. It's biological and electronics uh, merging together through device implants. And that can be simple implants that are simply uh, put onto the skin or into the tissue, or it can be complex interactive devices. Pacemakers, cochlear implants would fall under that category. Emil is one of the pioneers of the biohacking movement. He got his first RFID implant back in 2005 and has been educating people ever since on the possibilities of the technology. Um, this is a little Samsung door lock, a little deadbolt, and I can push the button and present my tag and unlocks. After noticing a bunch of people basically experimenting on themselves and it ending badly, Emil founded Dangerous Things as a way of making biohacking safer. He now provides kits so you can get your own RFID implants and get them safely under your own skin. One of the things that uh, that we strive to do at Dangerous Things, the, the design tenants are that, um, you know, the devices that we make should be uh, more or less managementless. They should be, uh, something that just is invisible, it becomes transparent. Uh, and the reason that that is, is that there's a real psychological imperative here where, you know, if you have, if you pick up your phone, you are a super, superhuman. You have access to the, all the world's knowledge, right, uh, on the internet. You can reach out and communicate with just about any, anyone, anytime, anywhere. You have superpowers, but you would never consider that to be part of you, part of your capabilities as a human being. It's a tool you're using. There's always this sense of separation between yourself and your tools. But when you put it inside of you and 
it's completely managementless. It's thoughtless, right? And some would uh, use the term frictionless. Uh, you know, you you now uh, have something that's very powerful. It can do a really important job for you uh, in the world that you interact in and you live in, but you don't really think about it. It's it's like uh, your heart or your kidneys. You don't think about those at all, but they're doing extremely important work for you. Now, when I was talking to Emil, it's so easy to get swept up in what the future holds for in-body technology or what he's most excited about. One such area is cryptography, essentially using your body as a secure access token. There's so much focus right now on biometrics, but the reality is a fingerprint or an iris scan or a biometric of any type, your, your body is not a secure token. Your body is an analog device that you roam the earth in. And to get any information from it, uh, it, it's, it needs to be sampled. It's an analog thing that gets sampled and digitized. And that means that can be replayed, it can be captured, it can be um, stolen. And so you don't have to, you know, everybody's like, oh, what if we cut off a finger or whatever? You don't have to do that. You can just, you know, copy the fingerprint data and you've, you, you've won. Your digital identity and your secu- digital security is going to become even more paramount than it is today. Even more important, it's it, it's going you know your ability to not only prove your identity but prove it cryptographically. So that's all well and good, but what about the fun stuff? What about the day that I can put a memory card in the side of my brain and voila, any language at the tip of my tongue? Well, it turns out there's one big barrier. The the challenge is for biohackers and for any any implant device maker that wants to use a battery is the power source. Batteries are um, you know, terribly prone to explosion, um, and there's all kinds of quality analysis that has to go on that, frankly, uh, biohackers can't afford. And so this is why medical device development takes a very long time and is very expensive, and then devices themselves are very expensive. And when, it, when it's in a, a Samsung Note 7, that's okay. You know, it, it, it explodes and you go, oh, wow. You know, or if it's on a hoverboard that catches fire or an e-cigarette thing that b- blows up. I mean, those are, those are scary events. People do get hurt, but it's by and large, it doesn't equal death instantly. It just means, you know, whatever. But, you know, hydrofluoric acid, all kinds of you know, heat, explode, it's bad. And so anywhere in the body, you're going to have serious, serious trauma, if not death, uh, from an event like that. So right now, Emil's focus is on technology that can exist within us to add capabilities useful to our daily existence, from opening doors to securing our identity. But many of these devices just sit within the body, and they don't really interact with any of our internal systems. But what if you wanted to go beyond these capabilities to add extra senses, beyond what anyone else could see, feel or hear? How would you define a cyborg? Cyborg, uh, it's uh, a type of an identity. Actually, the, the same word says, uh, is, is talks by itself. It's, uh, it comes from the word cybernetic organism. And actually it was going uh, to define humans that modify themselves in order to survive in other environments, like in space. But we feel that now we are transforming ourselves uh, not only to survive in space and in other environments, but in our own planet and to adapt better to Earth. This is Moon Rebus. Moon is a cyborg artist, which means... I have an implant in my arm that allows me to feel the seismic activity of the planet. 
and I feel that this is a new sense that I have that I call the seismic sense. And I share my experience through dance, also through music, with percussion, with the sculpture, uh, yeah, different mediums. It's a bit different from body hackers because we modify our body, but that's not our aim. Our aim is to modify our, our mind and, and to change our perception. And in order to do that, we attach things to, or implant things to our body. But the sensor I have in my arm is connected to online seismographs. So every time that there's a new data, just very often, uh, I get a vibration in my arm. And depending on the intensity of the earthquake, the vibration I feel is stronger or, or, weak, or weaker. Now, Moon says these earthquakes can be as frequent as eight minutes apart. And this fusing of real-world data with her body has created a unique connection with the Earth. It's alive and it, it creates vibrations uh, very, very, very often, like all the time. So uh, at the beginning I had to get used to all these vibrations, but now it's, it's like I, it's integrated, so it's part of me. And a good way to describe it, it's like I feel like I have two heartbeats now, like my own and then the Earthbeat, uh, having its own rhythm inside my body. And it's fascinating how alive our planet is because it's very different, I guess, to know that the Earth is alive but actually to feel it. It's, it makes you feel and connect different. As you've got this sense, you know that there's earthquakes happening. Has has that changed your perception of earthquakes? Yes, definitely. I there's this bad perception that earthquakes are a bad thing happening in our planet, but earthquakes have always existed and they are part of our nature. So I feel that the bad thing is that humans haven't been able to adapt to it, to to adapt and to really learn how our planet works. So if we would uh, have been listening to the earth uh, for a longer time, we probably wouldn't have been building uh, cities at the edge of the tectonic plates or in these very dangerous places. So I feel that we need to readapt to our own planet. When you feel like really big quakes happen and then later on you find out you know what that may have been do you, like do you have any have any sort of perception of that at the time when you feel it like oh, this one was really big like this you know maybe this affected people or yes uh this this actually i was surprised of how many big earthquakes are and nothing bad happens i mean actually i was surprised of the other way around like 99% of the earthquakes nothing bad happens because at the beginning it was like, wow, that's big, and then everything was fine. So it just it really depends where it happens and intensity. But yeah, so if there's a big one, I would check. Or And then when something bad happens, it's, it's really uncomfortable. It, I really, it feels weird. I mean, it's something not right. Implanting chips or hardwiring the body is an idea that many people, including myself, still find a little bit off-putting. But like any new technology that first feels foreign, 
everyone we interviewed about this spoke with a kind of assuredness that this idea of analog and digital becoming one would soon become the new normal. I think the younger generations, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll will be less afraid. Like now this normal to have tattoos, like there's no, no one is afraid of that. So I think the next generations won't be afraid of implants. I've been doing this over a decade. And in 2005, when I talked about it, people's reaction was quite visceral. That's Emil Grafstra again. Like death threats and violence, you know, just crazy, craziness. And, you know, anybody that I talk, random stranger, I would say, hey, I got a implant, and they, they would just recoil, right? Oh, why would you do that? Oh, my God. Ugh. Uh, now, today, somebody who I talk to who swears they have never heard of th- such a thing, um, their reaction is, oh, well, interesting. I mean, good for you. I wouldn't do it, but whatever, you know. So it's much more benign. And, and the reality is they have heard about it. They had to have heard, heard about it, but they just didn't pay attention. And they're like, no, I've never heard of this. But they've been exposed to it. So the mere exposure effect has kicked in in society in, at large. And now the idea is less scary. And so that paves the way for potentially larger businesses to say, OK, now it's time to launch the Apple Health Implant or whatever, because of the work that we've done. Now, the obvious path to a general acceptance of implants is one that's bound to be paved with all kinds of regulatory issues and will require a lot of public education. And Brian Johnson acknowledges all these problems, which is why his team is initially focused on building chips to improve health and fix existing issues with our brain. It's much more palatable to fix things that are broken than it is to give ourselves extra abilities. But before you start thinking this conversation is years away, Brian says the technology is here right now. His team has already started doing some trials in humans, although he wasn't very specific, but they will be announcing further trials later in the year. But as we learn more about our neural code, Brian says the possibilities of this technology will end up in a place that we can't even possibly imagine. What's exciting to me is if you take the general premise and we say, okay, let's build a chip and we will implant it in the brain. I say, great, we're going we're gonna to try to fix the things that are broken in the brain. And then our, because we're human, our imaginations immediately go to the familiar. We say, okay, well then how about, can I improve my memory? Can I read seven books in the time of one? Can I have a perfect memory? Can I telepathically communicate? Like we, we basically think of all the things we do today, we just say better. But what we're not great at is imagining the whole realm beyond the familiar. So the examples uh, in history are replete to demonstrate humans are really terrible at imagining the potential technology. So, for example, if we were with Gutenberg in 1450 and we said, hey, what kind of ideas do you think are going to be written about with this printing press? We probably would have struggled to imagine the ideas of the books that have been written. I really hope, like, first that people can are open and can and find exciting the idea of designing yourself that nothing is done that you can decide how to do it and at least for me it is like the union that that if you unite that if you extend your senses and experience the earth in a deeper way and you get inspired by other species living in this planet that maybe it will create more empathy to other people and we will be more aware how we are damaging our planet and how we treat the other species living in this planet. If you have the technology inside of you, permanently inside of you, it's not something you can lose or forget or you know, it's, you need to replace or upgrade in every other year, um, and if you don't think about it, then 
it really does become part of who you are and how you consider your yourself to be in the world as a human being. It's scary to some, it's exciting for others. We all have this mixture of emotions and I think that's appropriate, but I would rather that we have this conversation so that we can try to start marinating and looking at the possibilities because we really do need this lead time to digest it. And what I think a suboptimal outcome would be is to not raise these difficult topics now. I'd rather raise the the discussions and debate now so we have time as a society to kind of think this thing through. It takes us a long time to reconcile with new technologies and how we might use them. If you loved this episode of Moonshot, make sure you tell all your friends. They can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever they get podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Our website is moonshot.audio and you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod. Our cover artwork is by Andrew Millist. And our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. We'll be back soon with some new episodes, so stay tuned. 